Hello and welcome to Leaving Egypt. I'm Jenny Sinclair. And I'm Al Roxburgh. This podcast is for you if you want to explore the unfolding vocation of the church in these times of unraveling. We'll be doing two things, reading the signs of the times and sharing grassroots stories. We'll be having some brilliant conversations with fascinating people and we'll discover how local expressions of God's people are contributing to the reweaving of hope in our common life. We do hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Leaving Egypt. So our wonderful guest today is Edward Haddas, calling in from Oxford in the UK. Welcome, Edward. Glad to have you with us. Um, As we begin each of these uh, Leaving Egypt podcasts, we want to give our listeners a little taste and flavor of who you are. So we'd love it if you just take a few minutes and share a bit of your journey. Introduce yourselves to us. Okay, thanks, and very glad to be here. Um, I am indeed Edward Haddis, and right now I'm a research fellow at Blackfriars Hall of Oxford University, um, where I teach and write. But I came here through a rather circuitous path. I am an American born in New York. Um, I was raised in a uh, non-believing, non-practicing Jewish family. Um, when I, after I went to university at Columbia in New York City, and I got married, and eventually I became a Catholic somewhere in my early 30s, converted to, to Catholicism, and have since then become increasingly interested in Catholic social teaching and also in economics. The economics is uh, naturally a part of my, my sort of intellectual repertoire because I um, worked in finance for many years and then in financial journalism. I basically retired into my current position uh, at Oxford. And uh, so the combination of working in finance and being a relatively new Catholic, uh, and I should add a longstanding interest in philosophy and theology and social theory, um, brought me to write several books. Um, First, one about economics that came out in 2007, trying to get a moral perspective on economics. Um, and then one on Catholic social teaching that came out, I think, three years ago, uh, Councils of Imperfection, uh, trying to understand um, where Catholic social teaching comes from and how it can help us to understand the world in, in a Christian way um, and also just in a good way, a helpful way. So it's, it's not in that sense denominational, although it's very much based on the Christian understanding of how the world works. And finally, um, another book that came out last year on money and finance, again, from a very moral perspective. So that's who I've, how I got here. What I do is I write more books. I'm writing a book now on yeah, yeah, I, my, my, my adult son. I have three kids, and one of them said he can't remember a time when um, I wasn't planning to write a book. So somewhere around age five, he first understood what writing a book was. I've been doing it ever since. Um, so I'm writing one now about narratives of modernity, and I've got others um, lined up if I should live so long. Uh, but I also teach undergraduates, uh, mostly visiting undergraduates from U.S. universities. Here, I teach them various different things, including philosophy and uh, social theory of various sorts. Um, so I, I, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. I'm also a trustee 
of uh, Together for the Common Good, which is a charity, the charity that Jenny is chief executive at. Um, and that's, I think, basically how I know Jenny, and that's how I got around here. Um, and it's, yeah, as I said, a pleasure to be here. Well, it is delightful to have you. Yeah. Mm. So let, let's dig in a little bit. Um, as you know, uh, this podcast is called Leaving Egypt. And in many ways, what we're seeking to look at and to understand is the how, as Christians, how as churches, we engage with this modern story, which both moves forward and unravels. And economics is a big part of this modern story. It shaped us. And... You talk about, uh, in, in some of your work, you talk about um, the need to reorder economics. Can you say a little bit about what you mean by that? Yeah, thank you. I'm going to start, before I even answer your question, I'm going to answer another question that you haven't asked yet but should, which is uh, about leaving Egypt. Um, because one of the things in the, the tradition of theology is um, the spoils of Egypt. Um, and the medieval theologians made a deal about how the Jews, the Israelites, took out of Egypt um, the treasures. And this was interpreted as talking about how um, we should take out of, at that point, Greek civilization's philosophical treasures, and that the spoils of Egypt were part of the Christian heritage. And when I think about economics and I think about the various things we've learned in the modern world, I think of those as the spoils of Egypt. They're things that don't come out of the Christian tradition and yet can help us in understanding the modern world from a Christian perspective. And so one of the things I want to leave Egypt with is these spoils. And when it comes to economics, which was the question, um, I, I think that... Um, the way I try to see this is as a very much a human activity. So um, economics is the way I, I talk about it is it's this, this, the things that we do when we labor and produce things out of the world and out of the human community, the toil that we bring into the, to our labor. And then what we get out of that are the goods and services that we consume. So it's a basic human activity, and the aspect that I try to add to that is that it's a moral activity, it's an ethical activity. Like everything that we do, we strive for the good. So that's the way I want to look at economics. The way it's always taught is with an impoverished morality. It's all about self-interest. It's all about uh, utilitarian calculations. It's all about money. It's something that we should be able to quantify or formalize in, in mathematics. And all of that has a kind of ideological bent to it. It's all a way of, uh, of framing the questions so that the, the range of answers is already determined and is very narrow. The question of, are we serving God? Are we serving the good, the common good? Are we serving our true good and not our, our, our sinful or disordered desires? Those questions are all out of, out of, out of range, basically. The idea of a common good in, in conventional economics is so narrowly defined that you can't get any of the richness that, um, that we should have. 
So there are spoils of Egypt that we can take in terms of what the economy actually does, but a lot of the way that it's discussed, in fact, most of the way that it's discussed, in fact, almost all of the way that it's usually discussed, is really very unhelpful. So I, I can hear so your, me, your passion your passion in there, Edward, and I know that you have what you described as a, a, a hate affair with, with <laughs> economics. So there's, you, you kind of see it in these two ways, don't you? You, you also um, look at you, you like to separate out the normal economy, as, you were, as it were, from the financial system. Would yeah, you like to say exactly. a little bit about how you divide okay, those so two things? The normal economy, the real economy, as I tend to call it, is this what I just described in the sense of uh, labor and consumption. And it's very much real. Um, we work, we produce books, or we teach students, or we produce telephones, computers, um, and, and that's, it's very familiar. Um, and, and that's one sphere, and that's most of what happens in what people tend to call the economy. And then there's this regulatory or additional or somehow superfluous, depends on how you look at it, um, part, which is finance, which involves money, and it particularly involves the monetary system of where we, we give money to one from one person to another, and it's and then and there's a, a return flow over time. And the financial system, which I just gave you a theoretical definition, but one can also give it as a, a, a uh, very practical. It's what banks do. It's what investment banks do. It's what you see on stock exchanges, all that stuff that you hear about derivatives, financial crises. That is finance. Um, can get into some details here, but that basically you get that. The reason that I draw this distinction is, first of all, one is real and one is para, one is stands on this side of it. The second reason is that the real economy works quite well. It has, it, there are various problems with it, and we can talk about those. There are many problems with it. We can talk about those, but it has produced a standard of living. It has the, the highest ever. It's conceivable, relatively easily shiftable to serve the goods that we wish it to. We decide what goods we can, can, can use the economy for, what purposes we can use it for, good or bad. It's very responsive in that way, as, as we fa have found over history. And I talk about that if you want. Um, and when there's a crisis or a problem, um, just had a road fall apart in outside of Philadelphia, and two weeks later, it's repaired. Years ago, there was an earthquake in, in, in Japan. Six months later, everything was back in order. And that's dealing with really hard physical things to replace and change and alternate production. Um, we were in the process of moving from um, petrol or gasoline-powered cars to electric-powered cars. Huge transition. Um, and it may not work brilliantly, but we can imagine such a gigantic thing. So it's a system that does well, is resilient, and then you look at the financial system, and it keeps tumbling. Every single economic problem in the last 150 years, every recession or depression or inflation, um, every one of them either was caused by or was vastly amplified by a problem in the financial system. 
So the financial system doesn't work well. I call it the financial exception. It doesn't work well, whereas the economy does. And that's why I make that division. Can I just um, make a really sort of simple observation there? Is it is it something to do with the real economy involves relationship between people? You've often said to me before that um, there's a sort of natural morality in that because people have to see each other to make a, an exchange of goods. Um, whereas in the financial system, often it's depersonalized. It all happens on a spreadsheet or in digital form. And so somehow the, the human element has been engineered out. There's certainly there something, something in, in that? that. One of the accomplishments of the modern economy is that we do have this very large scale. And so um, I buy, say, a mobile phone It was made in, say, China, assembled from pieces in Japan that were assembled from pieces made in Thailand or California. And so in some sense, the people, the thousands and tens or tens of thousands of people that are responsible for that phone, I don't know. But every person along the line of production was working in a human environment. Um, And so there is a lot of personal contact between here and there, between the phone and all the workers that, that come to it. And when we work together with each other, we, we are by nature going to be cooperative. We're going to be generous. Um, there's going to be a sense of fairness. I'm not going to say it's perfect. It's not perfect. Human sin, human weak moral weakness enters in throughout the, the chain of production, throughout everything. But we have these compensating capacity of a human relationship, and we have a system that encourages that. So in most of the world, there's some effort to pay people reasonably fairly, um, not as much as they deserve often, perhaps most often, but some effort to think about pay, some effort to think about quality, some effort to think about what we should be doing. Finance totally different. It's very impersonal. Um, you might have some kind of contact within your office, but basically it's very much impersonal. There's every effort is made to separate the financial transaction from the real economy. When I used to work in finance, there was a great effort to say um, that, that uh, it's just a piece of paper you're trading. Don't think about the underlying thing. Don't think about the company. Don't think about the workers. Just think about what this piece of paper is worth in money terms. Well, that really is not going to be good for your moral behavior. Uh, and, you, and you say that this is, this is partly what makes it fu uh, fundamentally yeah, unstable. Um, is it be it's because this, it does, it's not based on an anthropology that really is thinking about the human being? Well, it being. is based on an anthropology. It's just, and thinking about the human being, but just backwards. So in the most of the economy, we have greed Uh, we can think about how we are perhaps ourselves greedy in one way or another, or our bosses are greedy or our co-workers, but we don't think it's a good thing. We have to hide it if we have it. Um, we can criticize people. You can say, you're greedy. That's a bad thing. You should be more generous. But in finance, we encourage you to be greedy. We say, ooh, how much money did you make? What was your return? That was great. You outsmarted the market. How clever you are. And so we encourage people to be greedy. Well, 
I, I'm happy to say that in this particular moment, uh, your, your, your sins are punished even in this life. Uh, maybe not individually, but, but communally, um, greed is destabilizing. You get too much greed and the whole system topples over. So finance is unstable. I think because the moral basis and the human moral basis is backwards. So, Edward, the, um, let's go back to this distinction that you're making, which makes a whole lot of sense, which is you've got the ordinary economy, the everyday economy. Uh, it's what I do when I go out onto the street here and go into a store and buy something, et cetera, et cetera. Then you've got this other economy. It's not that they're unrelated. What you described as the monetary financial uh, economy driven by greed. And the language you use for it, it's reality distant. And I'd love to pursue this idea with you because the other thing that you say, which I think Jenny and I agree with, want to explore, is that the church, God's people, um, need to speak prophetically into the economy. But here's, here's, here's for me the challenge is that this monetary financial economy you're talking about, it feels like the realm of wizards. Uh, it feels like this strange place I can't get my head around. Um, and, and yet, it's this financialization world that you say keeps breaking down, keeps creating the fundamental problems how, in your thinking, how does the church begin to speak prophetically to that world? That's a great question, which, of course, is the thing that people say when they don't have a very good answer. Uh, so <laughs> let me try. I think the first thing you want to do is, in terms of what the church needs to do, is it needs to understand. And one of the reasons I wrote this book, although the, the book is published by a secular press and isn't explicitly religious because I wanted to appeal to a larger audience. But one of the main reasons I did write it... Which, which specific this book is This is the that? last book. It which, called which Money, specific? Finance, Reality, Got Morality. Um, Got it. Published okay. by a wonderful little press called Ethics International Press in Cambridge in the UK. And I, so I wrote it with a secular audience in mind, um, but also particularly with a religious audience in mind to help people categorize finance in a way that would be familiar to religious people. Um, to the church, uh, at least there's still some Christians who believe in the notion of sin and the idea of goodness and virtue. And so we can have an idea. And certainly, I think all Christians now be very happy to talk about community and sharing and the idea of a common good that's different from the sum of each individual good, the idea of a motivation that's not self-interested, but you know, God-interested. All those ideas come up in my understanding of the economy, and the lack of those, those good ideas come up in my description of finance. And I think that as long as people don't understand that, as the churches well, you said it's wizards, so as long as they're entranced by this magic, this apparent magic of finance, um, and they, they sit wide-eyed 
you know, sort of trans transferred into animals who can't quite understand what's going on, um, they're never going to be able to come and, and return, you know, speak prophetically to it. So to give an example, we, we have a lot of effort to have responsible investing and socially responsible investing uh, on a big scale in terms of finance. What company shares and what companies do you own? And this is a, a noble effort, but a lot of it is just that the thinking isn't very clear because they don't really understand uh, what's happening in finance. So the first thing is a deeper understanding. The second thing that, that and that, oh, let me just sort of 1A is to understand deeply. 1B is to focus on the ethics of it, the deep ethics. So where are we being greedy um, and where are we being generous and remembering uh, that greed is a, it's an insidious vice. Um, we, we, you know, vices are all a little bit on the, they, they, they creep in upon us, but, but greed is particularly easy. Oh, I need that. I deserve that. I'm just being fair. That makes sense. That's the way the system works. And so we need to see through the covers to greed that make us make us think that what's happening in finance is perfectly normal. And that's actually a personal challenge because if you live in a country where housing prices are important and you think of your house as a financial asset and you want the value of your house to go up, well, I argue that's greedy. That's, that, is, that is a way of thinking about getting rich without doing anything in return, of basically gaining for doing nothing at the expense of people who don't own houses and do something. And so we need a bit of self-criticism from people who are perfectly happy to criticize corporate greed, but not to see the beam in their own eye in terms of their own desires to have unjustly high financial returns. So this kind of knowledge, self-knowledge is where you start. And then the prophetic voice has to be, well, let's look at finance as a system that should serve us and let's understand and evaluate in those terms. Who is this serving? Who is the, the group within the population that this financial arrangement or that one is serving? And is, this, is that right? Is that good? And I, I think you can make a prophetic voice and... A lot of the wizardry that you, you mentioned in asking the question, excuse me, a lot of that wizardry is, um, is obfuscation. Uh, I used to work at one of the big investment banks, and we had a conference once. Uh, this is many years ago, and what, are, what is now a gigantic business of derivatives was just starting. And it was a few years old, and it's been being very large. It needed a lot of computer processing, and, and those computers were just becoming available. And the man that I was talking to about this, explaining what he did, he said, well, the point is we design more and more complicated products so the clients can't figure out what's going on, because that way they're more profitable for us. Mm 
And we explain to them how complicated it is. And they say, oh, we trust you, which, of course, they shouldn't, because basically we're making it complicated mm -hmm. so that we can um, get a higher profit margin. Well, you know, everything is wrong yeah. with that. The client is trying to be greedy and think, oh, this is a great product. I can get more return for less risk. The person selling it is trying to be greedy. I bet that ignorant client won't understand what's going on. And the, the, uh, the intellectual energy that could be dedicated to almost anything that would be of more value than this mutual e effort to uh, dishonor among thieves, as it were, uh, that, uh, that intellectual effort is, is wasted. So, uh, but it then presents this cloud that makes it very hard for outsiders to, to understand what's going on. It not only makes it hard for outsiders to understand what's going on, it also makes it hard to critique because you're made to seem um, naive by by even saying it's greedy because you're operating in this um, culture which is all geared to that um, that culture of self. Well, it creates a, it creates a priesthood, doesn't it, in which it says to you, "Well, you don't understand. We know the yeah. mysteries." Yeah, yeah. I I was just wondering if if here we could. Um, just touch on as well the kind of underlying philosophy of this economic system, which which is liberalism and this idea of the unencumbered self, where where there's no uh, mutual obligation, you know, where where mobility is promoted, where consumer choice is pro promoted, rights, self determination, where there's the removal of constraint, where it, it becomes uh, almost a well, it's framed as a virtue. This idea of a false idea of freedom. And, and that that's, uh, kind of ties in with our uh, motif around Egypt because, I mean, these, these are the modern pharaohs, aren't they? These are offering this kind of pseudo-freedom um, in, in which it becomes the norm to to be encouraged to be greedy and to encourage yeah. each other. So uh, let, let me try and answer that in a little bit more subtle way um, than I usually answer questions, which is rather boldly up front, uh, because liberalism, this liberal meaning generous, um, and then it's associated with an idea of freedom. Liberalism is very much an ideology of the market. Uh, people talk about a market economy in which everyone is motivated by self-interest. And the curious thing is if you look at the economy with more impartial eyes, you see a mix you see a great deal of effort to talk about consumer choice, choice of where you can live. Um, and, you know, I, I can get a job. I'm in Oxford, but I could get a job in Manchester or I could get a job in Vancouver or Liverpool. There's a lot of uh, um, choice of a certain sort that is promoted, a kind of self-interest. And yet, that's not the whole story in the economy. There's also a great deal of community. There's a sense we share our knowledge of technology, of, of our professional knowledge, a great deal of effort to become more knowledgeable. There's a lot of teaching that goes on. Most workplaces that we have, particularly as countries get richer, are not impersonal factories, but they're offices where people work together. They share their experiences. They help each other as needed. So, there is actually a lot of, well, what Pope Benedict calls gratuity in the actual economy, not very much in finance, and that's really important. That's one of the ways of looking at why finance doesn't work. But there's also way too much 
of this false freedom that you, you mentioned, Jenny, of a notion of freedom that take, has no moral framing. There's no sense that if you are freely choosing the bad, you're not really free. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to your disordered desires. And so much of what's produced within the economy aims at seducing you, not at helping you be free, but at helping you be dependent. I need this brand of chocolate. I need this bigger house. I need to be, I'll, I'll get some, goal, some good out of being richer, a higher wage. And you're being encouraged to go away from the good things in the economy, the capacity to produce all these helpful and useful things, the capacity to be better educated, you're asked by the same economy that offers you these good things, you're also asked to give them up or to tr pervert them to, to do things that are not very, that are, that are bad, not, not very good. So that this is, this is interesting that you're, you're kind of painting a picture for us that, um, the, the economy for us is a bit like the wallpaper. You know, people just assume it's there and they don't kind of question it. Or if they do, they just see it in terms of, oh, there's a cost of living crisis or, you know, are we heading for a recession? Or it, it kind of language is, is quite general. But what you're painting for us is the sense of living within a philosophy, with it, living within an actual um, an ideology, which is which the, becomes manifest in, as you say, um, almost becoming groomed or schooled to want to behave in certain ways like like say during the um, pandemic you know we're all presented with the opportunity to order everything online that we become the perfect consumer you know sitting on our own at home ordering anything we want we don't need to talk to anybody or go anywhere or it can all just be delivered we become the perfect uh, consumer behavior and then who, who makes the most money during that period? Well, Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon. So that that's the perfect idea of of that kind of economy, yeah. isn't it? Where we are atomized. So so the economy is is yes, you say it's, 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 we we treat it like wallpaper, or we we have a set of stock phrases about it, but we don't think about how we are shaped by economic forces. Um, both for the good and for the bad. And we don't think about it as an aspect of life that we should think about how we live it morally. So we, we will very typically, we, we use it, say, more for complaining than for an opportunity for virtue. But it is an opportunity for virtue. It's way too important a part of our days and our nights and our thoughts for it not to be. Am I sharing? Am I engaging in personal conduct? Am I buying things responsibly? Is my job something that serves the common good, uh, that, that, is, that makes me a better person, that makes the world a better place? Those are questions we need to ask all the time in, in our economic life, just like we would in our romantic lives, or our family lives, or our artistic lives. Yeah, so, so Catholic social teaching is really helpful in this respect, isn't it? Because it always draws us back to say what's happening to the human person. What is happening here? So, you know, is the, are the choices that I'm making uh, affecting our relationship with each other? With my, with my neighbor? Are they, are they affecting um, our accountability to each other, our mutual obligation? Is it, is it changing our relationship to place yeah. and belonging? These are the kinds of things that are happening within the economy that we almost mm. um, become blind to. We just go along with it. 
This I know, she was a friend of a friend, um, was married to an extremely rich man. He had founded one of the large companies of the, the 1990s. He'd made, uh, I can't remember if it's hundreds of millions or small billions, but a lot of money, more than you would ever need for a lifetime. And at some point in this marriage, which had been going on for a long time, they had three little children. He fell in love with someone else um, and deserted his wife uh, and offered her lots and lots of money. She bought a sort of McMansion in one of the cities of America, a giant 12-room house for herself and her three kids. And he would take them off on weekends on the private plane to go visit Disney World or whatever. Uh, so it was all money was everywhere, so much wealth. But the whole his greed for his company and for his own fame um, had wrecked this this marriage. At least that's what she felt. It's a plausible story. And I remember going to visit her at her house in the city. This giant, giant house, bedrooms, playrooms, giant kitchen, three living rooms, whatever. And the three children were crowded around her, 10 feet away from her in the kitchen. They wouldn't leave her side because what they wanted was love and care and all of the economic things that were, as it were, substitutes for it had turned out to be dissolvers of the real human person. And that's where the economy turns wrong, where it, it becomes a, a, a temptation to take us away from the things that are truly important for us. Um, and sometimes people complain about being poor in ways that are turn out to be ways that take them away from living the life that's in front of them, of loving each other, taking care of each other um, in, in, in poverty. Pope Francis always talks about the goodness of po that poverty can bring in people. It doesn't always, but that it can because we share, we feel the need of our, our, our brother, our sister, um, and, and that need becomes our need much more easily than if we live in a 14-bedroom house in the suburbs somewhere with a five-acre lot where we never see our neighbor. Uh, you can't be, you couldn't walk over to borrow a cup of sugar. You'd have to drive over. It's a, a long walk. Now, your story actually, I think, appreciate your comment, illustrates a question I asked earlier of how does the church speak prophetically into the economy? Because a household is an accumulate. And it, it seems to me that in so many ways, Christians, how, how do you invite people to create households of thriving and life and love and commitment to one another, but not just households, communities in the local? The reason I'm asking this is that, again, for many of the leaders I know in local churches, the economy remains mystery, economy out there. But if you begin to talk about the economy of our interrelationships and belonging together in our local congregations and parishes, then right there are radical ways of addressing the kind of selfish financialization that you're describing. Yeah. I know whether you want to comment sure. on that. Uh, I left out one detail, which just is a little bit of a killer here, is that after he had 
ditched his first wife, he became an evangelical Christian. Uh, and he and his new wife were heading out to church every week. And he used to send notes to the ex-wife about how it would be good if she accepted Christ in her life. So uh, not a good moment for the, uh, the churches we're trying to build here. Uh, I kept that back in the hope that I could you know, use that as a, a kicker line, and I think it's worked pretty well. Uh, and so I think that one has to really think this through as a church leader. And one thing you, you, you hit on it with the etymology is, you know, oikonomos is just the, the law, the reason, the order of the household. Um, we talk about the, the, the economy of the Trinity in theology, that, that, that there's a, a, show, a way of ruling the, the, the rules that interaction. And so the economy should be something of love. It should be um, a commitment to each other to help each other, to build on each other, to show each other gifts of love at all times. And the more prosperous we are, the easier it is to love each other because we're not ourselves in deep need. And the fact that the more prosperous we are in our society, it seems like the more trouble we have being generous and sharing on a personal basis. And that suggests there's something deeply wrong with not necessarily the economy per se, but the way that we approach the economy. And I do think that Christian leaders, pastors, priests, youth leaders could step up a little on this. You can learn what you need to learn about how the economy is working, and you can encourage people to think, I don't have to be greedy. I should question myself. I need an examination of conscience on whether the life I am leading is greedy. I remember talking to an, a, a person who had a choice on a job, and he had some small children, and his wife was had a job, and he was offered a really, really good job somewhere else, lost place if he were to move. And he thought about it carefully and turned down the job. Um, and I'm happy to say he was a Christian, and his Christian faith and his understanding of his values helped him to make this decision. And he said it was hard because he was, has a certain amount of ambition, and he was going to have to give up on that. The job was in many ways better than the one he had in terms of solidity, so he was accepting professional risk. But he felt that you have to think about your priorities as a person and you have to let the economy, your job, your consumption serve those priorities, not the other way around. You can't let the economy become your priority. One of the things, I'll stop in a second on this, is that one of the things that I think is disordered in the way that people tend to live now is they put economic goods higher than they should in the hierarchy of goods. So we should think first of the, uh, the human person, of love, of the other, of the community that we can build, and that's just true in churches and out of churches. We should think of the transcendentals, the true, the good, the beautiful, and the economy comes after that. What we do if, during our days in terms of our jobs, what we consume, those things are important, but they're not as important as how we are in our families, how we are with our neighbors. And the mere idea of um, putting those things on the, the economy higher is already disordered. And that's something that we can reach as Christians. Let's get our hierarchy right. You, you mentioned a little earlier um, the word gratuity. 
which comes from Pope Benedict. I, I, I know that word. It's often difficult to understand because I think it's a translation from Italian or the Latin. But I find, for me, it's easier to talk about economy of gift. And, and I just wondered, um, one of the ways of being prophetic uh, in, for the churches in the neighbourhood is uh, to build up relationships with their neighbours. Um, neighbouring institutions, neighbouring businesses, neighbouring other places of worship, um, clubs, associations, and so on, without money changing hands, and and so you build up trust. You bring you build up bonds of trust in the local, and perhaps you exchange things. Perhaps you you offer. You know, you can use our building, or you know, we can help out. We can help each other out. This is the economy of gift. And it feels to me that that is a way for the churches to be prophetic, to say um, we're actually living this way. We we are living in a way that we recognise the economy happens, and it, you know parts of it are important, parts of it are corrupt, part of it you know is necessary. But the way we live is, as you said, we're putting uh, hum, human relationships and love before everything else, and that that for us is is more important than everything else, and we can live that out by practicing it in, in ways like that. I just wonder if you have anything to add about the economy of gift in practical terms, what, what that can look like. Yeah, I, I think it's one of the ways that one could think about that is it's something that should come out of our own particular communities. So one can have a handbook, as it were, best practice for economy of gift, but it's always going to be best if it's what your community your place needs the spontaneous thing. I'll say, you know, you mentioned like uh, exchange of gifts or communal things. Um, I have rarely felt communities come together more than over dinners where everyone brings, you know, contributes a dish. It has a remarkable effect. Um, and then, then I went to, I was talking to someone about this and they said they'd had it in their community. And it was... <laughs> is a pretty odd story, but it was very interesting, is that they had like four different ethnic groups in the community. And each ethnic group, members of each ethnic group brought local dishes. So there were Indians, and I can't remember, Filipinos and so forth. And it actually ended up being adding to belligerence of that community because people were feeling that no one would eat my dish except the members of my community. And they ended up it ended up sharpening divisions rather than lowering them. Total surprise to me. But I think that one thinks about ways in which we like to be receive gifts and we like to give gifts. And you were talking about just you know walk to your neighborhood and talk to people and see what they need, see what services or pleasures that they're missing. Um, what what is it that we can do for each other um, as as neighbors? And I think almost always there's something that's going on there. Where, where the church and the people in the church can be seen as, as resources of, of generosity and recipients of generosity um, that, that, that will help. Um, and what do, you, what do you think about all of that is in, the, in the terms of um, some kind of resistance against the, this modern Egypt, against the, you know, the technocratic state, the increasingly powerful big corporations and indeed governments now that are sort of joining up in this in this great uh, co- you know collusion of, of power of concentrated power how, how does how does local life in which the churches can participate even even in their decline even in their more vulnerable state um, how does that participation in the local uh, in in real terms sure. challenge those great powers 
You know, you just said it yourself. I think you said it very well there. You know, the mere fact of taking yourself as far as you can from the economy of calculation and of, of, of pursuing your self-interest, or if not exactly your self-interest, your 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 exact monetary justice. This was worth eight dollars, not six seventy-five. That step away from that as much as you can think of things in a different way you are actually resisting and it's hard i mean in this country we have um all this child protection stuff i think it's true in the u.s and canada i presume also and the, like so much in the technocratic state the intentions are somehow valuable you know we don't want to have child abusers in our groups but there's a, a, a one of my my acquaintances, Andrew Willard Jones, was talking about. He takes his kid and his kid's friends to the museum one day, drives them in the car. They go and they see the museum. They enjoy themselves. They go out for ice cream. They go home. Um, a few weeks later, their Boy Scout troop wants to go to the museum, and they ask for volunteers to drive. He volunteers. Here's ten pages of paperwork for child protection. Is your car safe? And so forth. Can you take them out to ice cream? Oh, I don't think so. That involves another set of pay approvals from the parents have to sign off before you can go. And all of a sudden, you're enmeshed in this welfare state and this technocratic rules, doing the same thing, but you've become um, enslaved to it. So resist as much as you can yeah. uh, to, to try and stay out of that, that model where everything is set by rules that are meant to be beneficial, but in the end, separate you from each other as loving, trusting creatures. So, Edward, I think, I think... You're saying something here that gets at the question of how can the church be prophetic to the kind of economies that you described. <clears throat> and I, I think that, number one, if a local pastor, priest, for example, uh, looks at this and listens to questions about financialization and derivatives, all of this and has some instinctive sense of, yeah, there's something destructive here. But it's just overwhelming. I don't, don't even know where to begin. I think part of what you're saying is you don't have to be the academic in Oxford thinking about all this stuff. You can be in the local, the priest who is connecting people, inviting them to attend and to listen and engage with each other. Like we had somebody on another podcast a little while ago, and what Mark was talking about was a very simple activity, challenging but simple, of bringing people together in a congregation to talk together about their own financial lives, their financial autobiographies that became itself liberating towards the kind of generosity that, that uh, you're talking about. I think that's part of as I wrestle with the question, I think that's part of what I'm hearing. These are questions at very different levels, and it's really important to think about what levels we are competent at. One of the things about modern mm -hmm. society is that there are some very high levels. You know, how should the oil industry be run? Well, I, you know, that's a global question. It involves engineering and monetary technology. Not a lot of people are really going to be competent to answer that question very well because you need to study it. 
And the same might be true of how should financial markets be organized. Um, and sure, I think it's useful for people who are curious. I teach a course, I'm teaching a course right now on money and finance based on my book at the Continuing Education Program in Oxford. And I hope that the 10 or 12 students that are in that class are learning something and they will be able to speak more intelligently to their friends about these quite big questions. But it, it's an illusion and it's, it's a distraction for most of us in our lives to worry about those things very much. Uh, you could say, well, I don't think my mortgage is fair. Probably right. But to start to understand why or why not that, that's, that claim is made is going to take you into a pretty complicated area that you may well, well not be able to master because it is complicated. I've given this you know, 20 years of thought. You may not have the time or the energy or the inclination to give it the necessary thought. You, you may not have the desire to read a complicated book or it may not be the way your mind works. But everyone can be loving, can be generous, can be sharing, can think about their, their, their income, can ask themselves, am I actually being greedy? Am I, do I, are my moral and ethical and life priorities correct? Those are questions that are available to all of us. But Edward, you're, but you're not saying that we shouldn't care about it. You're not saying that we should just live with the way it is. We started the conversation by you were talking about how reform yeah. is important. And, and what, what I think what you are saying, though, is that we, if by focusing on what really matters, by focusing on relationship, love, and you know, family, place, belonging, and the, the thriving, you know, flourishing of the human person, then if we see that's not happening, if we see conditions that are making that flourishing very difficult, then the church does have a calling to be prophetic and call that out. And if the church has a has a relationship with the local families in the area, it's in a very yeah. good place to do that because it actually has first-hand experience. So two things to that, and I'm sorry, I was wasn't being I wasn't trying to say we should that the church as a whole should abstain from doing this. On the contrary, I think the church has the, the right prophetic skills, advice. Christians have this whole tradition. To, to of, of understanding the whole moral tradition, the whole social tradition, uh, and teaching in the Catholic, you know, within the Catholic teaching, but also just the lessons that anyone can learn from this. Uh, we have all that, and that makes us particularly well suited to have a dialogue, a critical dialogue, and also an evangelical sort of complaint to, to talk to the world. Uh, so on the, uh, but that's not the responsibility of every single Christian. That was what I was trying to say. That's the responsibility of people who have the gift, the skills, the time to do that. And that's part of what Christians should be doing. Um, but I would also say, so, and then coming back to this, this at the bottom, if we do live our own Christian lives that way, I completely, you know, what you said is just beautiful. I completely agree with it, that they will give us the kind of strength of witness to, to at, at the higher level, higher, not necessarily more, more important, just sort of more complex. Um, it will give us that, that, that support that we need to help make this case that this is a better way to live and that it's possible to do so. Yeah. There was something else, something else you said about um, how we're shaped by economic forces morally. Uh, I'm really interested to explore that because, you know, we might think of the economy 
causing certain, you know, issues around low wages, high welfare, um, stagnation or whatever the latest thing is. But the the truth is as well, though, that this this philosophy that's underlying this particular kind of economy, um, it's not always been there. And it doesn't have to be like that forever and ever and ever, does it? And it it is um, a force that does shape our moral behavior. And I was wondering if you can just explore for a minute um, some of the some of the pathologies that this economic system is generating in our in our social uh, life. Yeah, together. I, and I think one of the I, I, I answer that in sort of in two two phases. The first phase is to think how your apparently free judgment is influenced by forces that we are dimly aware of or claim aren't um, aren't actually influencing us. So when I worked in finance, I, I don't think I ever met one or two people out of hundreds who would say, yeah, I admit I'm greedy. They would always say, well, I deserve X hundred thousand pound bonus. That's what I should have. And so they, they would see this as a just reward for what they were doing. And the standard of, of, of greed wasn't there. It was just the way that their environment was, it all seemed fine to feel this way. So one part of the self-analysis that you have should be to look at your environment and ask how are you being influenced by the expectations of a corrupt society, of a corrupt set of values that, inf- that permeate our society. And the second part of, of, of my answer is that there are corrupt values. So we overvalue pleasure relative to virtue. We overvalue the individual relative to the community. We overvalue the sense of myself rather than myself as part of a network of people uh, in, in close relationship. We undervalue the danger of sin, of being disordered in our moral lives. And that's all comes out of a vision of human nature, a vision of the human good, that we can date back hundreds of years to the Enlightenment and nominalism in the Middle Ages, a sense of how the world works that's profoundly anti-Christian. Christians can make learn something from some of the things that we've discovered from that. But at bottom, there's a vision of the human person, of self-interested, um, of worldly, not heavenly, um, that we need to reject as Christians. Yeah, so so we get we get a logical conclusion where euthanasia is is seem to seem to be reasonable to offer to the old or to the poor. That seems to be the logical yeah. uh, place that you end up. Well, we're in the, we're in this weird kind of mixed thing, you know. Canada, where 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 Al lives, is uh, the world leader in euthanasia right now. It's a ridiculous three six percent of deaths in Canada are. are it's unbelievable. Unbelievable, yeah. and yep. they also have a very you know energetic suicide prevention campaign. And someone was saying we should have one telephone number, you know, your death number. Press one if you want to be talked out of suicide, press two if you wish to arrange your suicide because we're confused in our culture. There's still some well, they say, talk about we're driving on fumes of Christianity. There's still some sense of the value exactly. of life um, and yeah. the churches have you know, a duty uh, to try to 
nurture that sense to bring the Christian base to it uh, and, and help people understand it. Um, and, uh, and then to recognize the evil that is there in something like euthanasia, which is your ultimate, as you say, the ultimate statement that if it's better to be dead than to ask people to care for me, um, is, is an amazing thing to think. But that is, in fact, where the modern world does lead us, of these modern values leads us. Well, the, 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 the place this comes together, and it was recently on the news, is where here in Canada, numbers of people are asking for medically assisted dying principally because they cannot afford to find a place to live. Now, now that, that's, that's madness, I know, but that's bringing this conversation concretely right down in terms of the sin and brokenness. But there's a, there's a philosophical question I want to ask you, Edward, because uh, I know that's part of who you are, and it gets to how do we address this, which I think is what Catholic social teaching is seeking to do, which is that if I'm listening to this as a local leader, a local pastor, the thing is you don't engage the principalities and powers of financialization primarily by trying to take them on in their own game. You engage these principalities and powers by asking how in the local community and parish and context where I live, do I, along with others, begin to create alternative ways, alternative accumulates, ways of being together? Um, that, that, that's... The reason I say that is because I feel that sometimes regular leaders in ordinary congregations can listen to this and be overwhelmed because I don't have the, I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the experience. But the point is, and you may disagree, is you don't need that knowledge. I mean, it's important to know, but it's something about what you're doing on the ground in the everyday. Yeah, so... If I, I, I don't disagree. I agree very strongly with that. As, as I said, I, I, I think it's important that someone from the Christian perspective uh, is informed and knowledgeable. Absolutely. Um, and, yep. But we, you know, we have to recognize as Christians that we're not on the winning team right now in society. It's not like people are going to come and say, hey, I hear you study Catholic social teaching. Please reform the financial system for me because we realize it's all messed up. You know, it just I, I remember after the financial crisis of 2008, that's before the one of 2021 and so forth. But it's it, I, I, some group of bishops or priests or someone, you know, writing this sort of manifesto of what should be done. And it was not terribly well thought out and it wasn't terribly, you know, deeply understood what was happening. But what was really striking to me was no one cared. It's not like people are coming to us as Christians and asking us that. So we have to take initiatives that make sense. Um, And yes, we should have a critical voice because, you know, there's a little bit of interest and we can help help Christians who are in finance think about what they should be doing. There's lots of things that it's yep. worth doing. But you know, when, when you're in the position that Christians are in Western societies, you have to look at things you can do and do extremely well and do them. And one of the things you can do is you can reach out to your neighbors on a one-to-one basis as Christians and say, let's figure 
created a, an Okoneme, a, a, you know, a community of sharing um, right here, right now. And we can then think more clearly because we, about the, the world we're in because we've created an alternative. And we can start to think, could we make more of the world like this? And that's something we really can do um, in, in a realistic way. Exactly right, yeah. We're nearly finished. I just, I just want to um, address one thing, which is sometimes when, um, when people talk like this, we get accused of nostalgia. And it seems profoundly clear to me that that's, that's a really misplaced accusation because when you talk about mod, the modern, modern society, modernity, there's a, a sort of association, isn't there, with certain language, certain vocabulary that, you know, modern is supposed to be good somehow <laughs> and, uh, you know, liberal is supposed to be good and, and nostalgia and so on refers to something old that we can't possibly go back to and it means going back to uh, unsatisfactory arrangements that we've escaped somehow. There's this, this assumption of endless progress is always going to be good. And, and I think that what, what you just set out there this way of, of conceiving of life as it, as it can be, as it should be, as human beings thrive in, in such a way of living. There's nothing nostalgic about that. That, that, is a, that is us saying, no, this is us asserting what it means to be human. And, and the, the arrangements that we've currently got are profoundly anti-human. And that, that to me seems to be a, it's a very profoundly countercultural position. It's, it's a difficult position, but it's not nostalgic. Now, nostalgia is, is, is just one of the ways in which we escape from reality because you know, time's arrow flies only one direction. We can't go backwards. And particularly from the modern world, the modern world, we're very self-conscious of what we do. We think about what we are doing. We think about history. And the idea of sort of going back to a, a pre-modern economy it's first of all undesirable. Do we really want to give up on being able to have a cross, you know, across the ocean conversation um, for an hour that we can then distribute to anyone who wants to hear it because of the internet? No, we don't want to give that up. Why should we want to? Uh, we want. Do we want to give up on a the free access to pornography? Yes, we want to give that up. But it's not nostalgia that I want to get to the pre-porn world. I assure you that lots of people would have been delighted to have as much pornography around in the 15th century or the 5th century BC as we have now. Uh, but what you want to do is where you're living now, the world that we have, there are good things and there are bad things. You want to try and harvest the good, enhance those good things, fight against the bad, um, and in the particular things that we're talking about, one of the ways you fight is at the, the local, uh, the, the local level where the Christian message is particularly effective and particularly possible, um, in this, in the modern world as, as we have it. But nostalgia is, it's just one of those ways in which we're diffused from actually doing things. We say, oh, it was much better in the old days. Um, I wish we could go back to that. Or I'll pretend, or we'll have a sort of larping, you know, of, you know, pretend action of being in the past. No, we need to think about where we are now and deal with those problems as best we can and using our Christian heritage, our Christian belief, our Christian 
worldview that can inform us to, to deal better with this, this current world that, we, that we're thrown into, that we have no choice but to be in. Thank you, Edward. I think that's a great place to leave it. It's been really a great conversation. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you for ha- having me and asking such interesting questions and making such interesting comments. Oh, Edward, thank you so much. It's been engaging and encouraging and sets the mind off in a whole other set of directions. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Al, too, also. It's great. Very happy to be here. Thanks for listening to Leaving Egypt. We look forward to you joining us again on the next episode. In the meantime, you can find out more at togetherforthecommongood.co.uk And you can find me on alanroxborough.com And do check out Leaving Egypt on Substack too. This podcast is brought to you by Together for the Common Good and the Missional Network. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you'd normally listen to your podcasts. And we'd really appreciate it if you would rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. So that's it from us. I'm Al Roxborough. And I'm Jenny Sinclair. Thank you so much for listening. God bless and see you soon.